0: We are in part nine of a series called The Last Word on the Gospel of John, and as we've been studying and reviewing every week, it is entirely accurate to say that the Apostle John has the last word about Jesus in the New Testament, and that's true for several reasons. John is described six times as the disciple that Jesus loved. He's part of the inner circle. Peter James and John. He sits closest to Jesus at the Last Supper. He's a first cousin to Jesus because their mothers were sisters. He is the last to leave the cross as Jesus is dying, and he is the disciple entrusted by Jesus in his very last moments to take care of his mother Mary. So you could argue that John is the closest of all the disciples to the Lord, and so he's the obvious final authority. He's the obvious last word of the life and death of Jesus. But John has the last word for another reason. His writing is incredibly powerful because the ministry and the words of Jesus are burned in his brain. They are seared in his spirit, even decades after the fact. John's memory is so keen that he still remembers the very first hour he met Jesus. It was 4 p.m. in the afternoon. He recalls vividly little details that there were six water pots at the wedding in Cana of Galilee. He remembers that the Samaritan woman left her water pot at the well in her excitement to share her testimony. He remembers that an anonymous cripple at the pool of Bethesda had been sick for 38 years. That's an odd detail to remember. He remembers that the high priest's servant's name was Malchus. And John probably handled the financial end of the fishing business for his father Zebedee because there was enough accountant in John to remember that what the feeding of the 5,000 would have cost if they'd had to pay for the food out of the general fund. He said it was 200 penny worth. He was an eyewitness. And that's exactly what he means when he writes these words in one of his epistles. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. He's talking about Jesus. For the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and we bear witness and show unto you that eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. But other disciples, they were eyewitnesses too of all of that, so there must be more to John having the last word than that, and there is, because as we've studied, John is the last surviving elder of the first century. His gospel, his three epistles, and the book of Revelation are the final documents in the Bible written by any of the apostles. Now, Revelation, as you know, that's placed last in the document called the Bible, But chronologically speaking, all five of John's books belong at the end. And there's at least a group of scholars that think his gospel may have very well been the last book penned in the New Testament. As John puts his pen to that piece of parchment more than 60 years after Pentecost, one thing weighs on him. He is keenly aware he is the last surviving elder of the first century. He's the last original voice. He's the last witness to the ministry of Jesus as one of his disciples. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are gone. They wrote their gospels 30 years before. His friend Peter is gone, crucified head downward at his own request. He didn't feel worthy to die in the same manner as his Lord Jesus. And the pen of the prolific apostle Paul silenced forever since his brutal beheading by the despotic emperor named Nero. And all of those martyrdoms are now at least 30 years in the past. So when John picks up a pen and he begins to write his gospel sometime after AD 90, he really does have the last word on Jesus. That's why his gospel is unique. By the close of the first century, false teaching is already beginning to rear its ugly head and attack the church. And that's why the gospel of John does more than any other piece of writing to tell us not just what Jesus did or where Jesus went or what Jesus said, but who Jesus is because brothers and sisters in the apostolic faith, if we lose that revelation, no other revelation really matters. And that's why John's gospel starts like this. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. John is meaning for there to be an echo in your brain. You're supposed to think of another verse when you read that verse. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Why do those two verses start the same? Because John's trying to tell you this Jesus who came, he was God in a body of flesh. And he says that specifically in verse 14. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. And he was full of grace and truth. Now we'll celebrate it as we move on through the next month. But the doctrine of the incarnation is that God became flesh in order to save us from our sin. This revelation of the mighty God in Christ is one of the most wonderful and yet one of the most incomprehensible things about God. It is so far beyond us that religion has tried to explain it using extra biblical terms and concepts like the Trinity, which states that God exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And those three persons are co-equal, co-existent, and co-eternal. But with all respect and honor, that is not at all what the Bible teaches. Scripture reveals to us that Jehovah in the Old Testament became Jesus in the New Testament. When God robed himself in flesh and became a man, Jesus was unlike any Other man. He was both fully God and he was fully man. That's why he could say, I and my father are one. That's why he could declare, he that has seen me hath seen the father. So Jesus, because he was God in flesh, he could speak as God or he could speak as man. He could act in his deity or he could act in his humanity. This is what we call the dual nature of Christ and we see it everywhere in Scripture, even in the Old Testament. We'll quote this at Christmas, I guarantee. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. That's his humanity. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. Now here comes his divinity. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Not just a man anymore, that's God, robed in flesh That's the Old Testament. Here's the new Paul writing to Timothy and to the church at Colossae. He said to Timothy, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. Here it is. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up into glory. That can't be talking about anybody else except the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul said it this way so succinctly to the Colossians, for in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. I'm reminded of an old song that says, I'm glad I know who Jesus is. Amen. Now maybe you've wondered about this as we've studied the gospel of John because of the references Jesus makes to the Father and the Son but that's just him describing or John writing about his deity and his humanity. It's not two persons, but it's two natures in one person that we know as the Lord Jesus Christ. So when Jesus speaks of himself, or when we read a Bible statement about Jesus, we need to take a second and determine whether that's describing Jesus as God or Jesus as man. Somebody years ago put this together and I think it's so phenomenal. As a man, Jesus was born a baby in Bethlehem. But as God, the Bible tells us, he existed from eternity. As a man, scripture says, Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. But as God, he didn't have to grow because as God, he never changes. As man, he was tempted by the devil, but as God, he cast out devils. As a man, he was hungered, but as God, he could miraculously feed 5,000 with just a few loaves. As man, he thirsted, but as God, he could give living water. As a man, he grew weary, but as God, he can give us rest. As a man, he slept in a storm, but as God, he stood in the bow of a boat and calmed the water by saying, peace be still. As a man, Jesus prayed, but as God, he answered prayer. As a man, he was scourged and beaten at a whipping post, but as God, he could heal the sick because by his stripes, we are healed. My goodness. As a man, he died, but as God, he could rise from the grave under his own power. As a man, he was a sacrifice for sin but as God, he forgave sin. As a man, the Bible says he did not know all things in his humanity, but as God, he did know and he does know all things. As a man, Jesus says he had no power, but as God, he declared, I have all power. As a man, he was inferior to God, lower than God, made humble, made as a man, made in the form of a servant, but as God, he was equal to God. He was God. The word was with God and the word was God. As a man, he became a servant, but as God, he was and is the king of kings and the Lord of lords and the God of all gods. He is the one that we worship. Now, all of that on that chart, and you know after this series especially, I love charts. That's exactly what's happening in John chapter 17 when Jesus prays. This cannot be a trinity of co-equal persons because one God who's co-equal to another God, one God praying to another God, they could not be co-equal. That would make the God praying subordinate to the other God. So it cannot be three persons or two persons. Rather, what we're seeing in John 17 is Jesus' humanity praying to deity. He's giving us a pattern. Now, we look at Matthew 6 and at Luke 11, and we call that the Lord's Prayer. But really, that's the disciples' prayer where Jesus is teaching us to pray. If there is a Lord's Prayer in the Bible, it's John chapter 17. When Jesus, imagine this, he prays into the future for us. Did you know that Jesus prayed for you? Did you know that Jesus knew that you would be here tonight? And he prayed over his church. He prayed over his disciples. And it begins like this. These words spake Jesus and he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour... Is come. That's very important. Remember earlier in the gospel, he's saying, My hour is not yet come, but now the hour has come. Glorify thy son, that thy son also may glorify thee. He continues, he says in verse 4, I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. I have manifested thy name in verse 6 under the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept thy word. What name did Jesus manifest when he was on the earth? He manifested his own name, Jesus. If Jesus manifested the Father's name while he was on earth, we can call the Father by his name Jesus. When you pray to Jesus, you're not praying to a subordinate God, getting him to carry the mail to the real God, the real boss, the real power. When you pray to Jesus, he said, I have all power. All power in heaven and earth is given unto me. So when you pray to Jesus, you're praying to God. Verse 14, this is beautiful and powerful and so meaningful. I have given them thy word and the world hated them because they're not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that you would take them out of the world, but I pray that you would keep them from the evil that's in the world. Do you realize Jesus doesn't want us to hunker down in the bunker and lock the doors and us four and no more and just kind of stay here and police each other until he comes? He wants us to go into the world and reach for the world. He just doesn't want us to be part of the world system. They are not of the world even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them, make them holy. That's what that word means. Through thy truth. Thy word is truth. As you've sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. Jesus could come into this world and he who was holy was not tainted by the world. And that's what he wants us to do, to be in the world, but not of the world. And then this, neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. Jesus isn't just praying for us. He's praying for the people that we will reach that will also serve him. Jesus prayed for people that are not yet part of his kingdom. How much more should we, if we are sent like he is sent, pray for people that are not already part of God's kingdom? He said, I'm praying that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. Jesus prayed that we would be in the world, but not of the world. That's a difficult balance, and it's only possible through the Holy Ghost. And Jesus also prayed that they all may be one. Can I just say that Jesus answers so many prayers for us. This is the only prayer he ever prayed that we can answer for him, that they all may be one. When you love your brother and your sister, when you love your church and your pastor, what you're doing is you're answering the prayer that Jesus prayed over you. Our unity, our love for God, and our love for each other, that is our greatest testimony to this world and especially so in this generation, when things are so hateful and violent. It's unreal what has happened in our world in the last few years. Things have turned upside down, it seems, and so much of... just just vindictive rhetoric floating all around. It's in social media, it's in the news, it's in political discourse, it's in our streets. Violence and crime and hatred and racism and God intended. Jesus prayed that his church would stick out like a sore thumb in all of that mess. He prayed that we would be a city set on a hill whose light could not be covered up and that we would be through our unity the testimony that the world needs. Would you lift up your hands for a second? Would you lift your voice? And would you pray for your church? In fact, pray beyond the walls of your church. Pray for the church. Pray for his church. You've got brothers and sisters around the world that you've never met. You don't share their language or their ethnicity or their nationality, but they are your brother and they are your sister. And when we love each other and we are one around the world, it accomplishes the work of God oh that's a nice nice response and I thank you for it but would you lift up your voice for just a second and would you actually really pray for that we need the church to be unified more in this generation than in any other generation we need to love each other and stick up for each other and pray for one another and work with one another more than ever before If you've ever had a spot in your life that was rough, you know how much you needed the church. That's how much your brother and your sister need you. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. God. Now, if you don't know it by now, I love the gospel of John. Because from his opening sentence, John has been on a mission to prove to us that Jesus Christ is exactly who he declared that he was. He is the true and the only God in a body of flesh. And that's why 90% of John's gospel is unique. We've studied it. The first half of John's gospel covers three years of Jesus' ministry and it includes seven signs, seven miracles that prove his divinity. He takes authority over the elements of nature. He takes authority over sickness. He even takes authority over death. He turns water into wine. He heals a nobleman's son. He heals a lame man and feeds 5,000. He walks on the water. He heals a blind man and he raises his friend Lazarus from the dead. John loves sevens. There's not just seven miracles in that first part. In his gospel, there are seven titles of Jesus. There are seven sermons by Jesus. There are seven witnesses to Jesus' deity. And then if you compare all four gospels, you'll find out that there were even seven sayings of Jesus on the cross. But there's more than that. Only in John's gospel does Jesus talk at such great length about his identity. And as we've seen and studied, John is the only gospel writer who intentionally records the seven I am statements of Jesus, seven times where Jesus directly reaches back to that ancient name of God and says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me, and I am the true vine, and my Father is the husbandman. Oh, my goodness. Now, it's invisible in the English scriptures. We only see a pronoun and a verb, but it's obvious in the ancient languages. Ego, I, me in the Greek. A carpenter from Nazareth is reaching back to the greatest moment of revelation in Jewish history when God revealed his name to Moses at a burning bush. He said, I am that I am. You go tell Pharaoh, you go tell the children of Israel, you go tell anybody that asks, I am hath sent me unto you. And Jesus continually reaches back to that moment of revelation and uses that ancient name of God in reference to himself. We've reviewed the seven direct times, but there are seven other times that Jesus uses I am, ego, I, me, in reference to himself. I am the one that speaks to you. I am, so be not afraid. If you believe not that I am, you will die in your sins. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. Before Abraham was, I am. When this has come to pass, you will believe that I am. I have told you that I am. He says it over and over and over again. And so John spends the last half of his gospel, chapters 12 through 21, summarizing just the last week of Jesus' earthly ministry. He spends five full chapters, as we've seen, chapters 13 through 17, detailing the very last conversation between Jesus and his disciples. But now, the hour is come. And now, Jesus is a man on a mission. So the pace of the narrative starts to pick up as John moves quickly to his conclusion. Chapter 18, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where was a garden into the which he entered, and his disciples, Jesus, heads to that garden where he prayed, the garden of Gethsemane. And Judas, the betrayer, brings soldiers to arrest Jesus. Jesus knew this. In fact, the Bible says so in verse four. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth. He walks right out into the midst of this battalion of soldiers, temple guards, and he says unto them, who are you seeking? And they answered, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said unto him, There's a word here in italics. They put it in to try to make it make sense in English. It doesn't need to be there. Jesus wasn't making a sentence, he was using a name. Jesus looked back at that highly trained battalion of soldiers and said, I am. And when he said that, Judas also, which betrayed him, was standing there with him. And as soon as he said unto them, I am, they went backward and fell to the ground. Now that's amazing, brothers and sisters. Jesus spoke his name at a well and a sinful woman's life was changed forever. He spoke his name during a storm and a disciple named Peter was empowered to walk on the waves of the sea. And now he speaks his name in a garden at midnight and an entire battalion of highly trained soldiers fall on the ground like so much cordwood. Now there's all kinds of theologians today they will miss what Jesus was saying. But the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin, they caught the meaning all too well in John chapter 8. That's why they took up stones to stone Jesus. And all this time, they've been orchestrating and plotting his crucifixion because Jesus looked at them and he said, Your father Abraham, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus looked at the religious leaders of Jerusalem and, and all of Israel and said, if you don't believe that I am, you're gonna die in your sins. And then he said something so strange and it mystified them. When you have lifted up the son of man, then you will know that I am. I love this. You see that name that God revealed to Moses that name that Jesus keeps using. In the Hebrew, it comes from four consonants. It's called the Tetragrammaton. Hebrew reads from right to left. And so those letters are yod, He, Vav, He, the Tetragrammaton. And because ancient Hebrew was written only in consonants, those who read it aloud, they had to supply the vowel sounds. There is no equivalent translation in English. We just would say maybe the eternal. And in the English language, we'd use the consonants J-H-V-H and put in vowel sounds, and that's why you keep saying Jehovah. And the praise team sings songs about Jehovah. In Hebrew, it would be Yad-Heh-Vav-Heh, Yahweh or Yahweh. All the same God, really the same name. Now the Jews, there's this little piece of their history that's quite mystifying. They backslid in the Old Testament. Their temple was destroyed. Their city was ransacked. They were taken into the Babylonian captivity in 450 BC. They finally came back. And when they came back, they talked among themselves. They were terrified. They were paranoid about possibly blaspheming the name of God and being sent back into captivity. And so, to prevent anyone from ever getting close to blaspheming the name of God, they came up with this idea. They outlawed the use of the name of God. Imagine that. The people who first received the revelation of God's name through Moses and they've now outlawed the use of his name. You can't speak that name publicly out loud. First, it was not allowed for the common people to say it. Then it was not allowed for the priests to say it. And finally, only the high priest was permitted to speak the name of God out loud and he was only allowed to do it behind the veil one day a year behind the veil on the day of atonement. And we know this from history. Between the testaments when Simon when he died, he was the last high priest who ever used the name of God When he died in 270 BC, 300 years before Jesus died on the cross, when Simon the high priest died in 270 BC, they put a total prohibition on using the name of God in public. Instead of saying that name, Yahweh, they would say Adonai. It was a substitute word. It was a Hebrew word that just means Lord. Lord. And so if they would be reading the scripture in the synagogue and they'd see that holy name of God, Yahweh, they wouldn't say that because they weren't allowed to speak it out loud. So they would simply, they'd read along and when they came to that name in the scripture, they would say, Adonai, Lord, a substitute word. And the whole congregation who knew what was going on, they would reply, Hashem, which means the name. It went on for three years. Can't say Yahweh. Can't say the holy name of God revealed to Moses at the burning bush. You have to say the substitute word, just Lord or Adonai. And then the congregation knows that the, the priest, the rabbi, he cannot say the name of God out loud. So when he says Adonai, they know what he's thinking. They know what he's seeing and they respond, Hashem, the name. It went on for 300 years. And that's why the gospel of John is so amazing because suddenly a carpenter from Nazareth is just walking around the streets casually using that holy name of God, the name that nobody has said for 300 years and he's using it to describe himself. Now it makes us vibrate with revelation but it made them mad. But here's the fact Jesus had the right to reach back into the Old Testament and use that name of God because he was God manifest in the flesh. He was the one who appeared in the burning bush to Moses. He was the one who appeared as the ram in the thicket to Abraham. He was the fourth man in the fire that delivered those three Hebrew boys. He was the deliverer of Daniel and Joseph and so many others and so because he was God he had the right to use that name so you read it in the New Testament and you just see I am in the Gospel of John. But Jesus is not using just a pronoun and a verb. He's reaching back to that greatest moment of revelation in Israel's history. And so today, fast forward 2,000 years, when you worship Jesus' name, you are instantly invoking all the power of every covenant name in the Old Testament. You need the Lord that healeth thee. That's the name of Jesus. You need God. God, my miracle, God, my banner, the Lord, my shepherd. You, that's the name of Jesus. Anytime you pray in the name of Jesus, anytime you worship the name of Jesus, anytime we preach the name of Jesus, the power of every Old Testament covenant name of God is present. My goodness. Now, in the scripture, there have been books in modern times written about this. Most of them are full of baloney. But there is a Bible code. It's not in those new books. But there is a Hebrew code. It's obscured in English, but it was very plain to those Jewish leaders every time Jesus spoke. When he said, I am, when he said in the Greek, ego, I me, which to us looks like just another pronoun and a verb. He was identifying himself to them as yad Vavhe, vav Yahveh. He was saying, I am that I am. Much of the Old Testament, especially the poetic books, is written in what might be called coded form. Made it easier to memorize. We did a whole series a year, year and a half ago on Psalm 119. Some of you were there. Each of the 22 sections in Psalm 119 is labeled by one letter of the Hebrew alphabet because each of the eight verses in each of those 22 sections starts with that letter in order of the Hebrew alphabet. In Lamentations, each of the five chapters has a similar pattern. Chapters one, two, four, and five have 22 verses. Chapter three has 66 verses, obviously a, multi- a multiplied uh, by three, the, the, the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. In Proverbs 31, there are 22 verses about the virtuous woman. And if you could read them in Hebrew, those 22 verses each start with the subsequent letters of the Hebrew alphabet. So this is everywhere in scripture. And the Jewish scholars, not only did they study it and love it, They they would unpack the scripture and they would teach it to their children. They would teach it to their nation. The Jewish scholars miss nothing, not not the finest, tiniest detail in regard to the holy scriptures. It is astonishing that they could know so much about God's divine arrangement of scripture and totally miss God's divine atonement when he came in flesh. But one of the details that the Jews were fanatical about was the name of God. It's so sad that when God came in flesh, they crucified him. Now, we go now to the week that Jesus dies. Prophecy is accelerating and John's narrative is accelerating. All the gospel writers talk about this. Of course they do. These are probably some of the only books in all of history that talk more about the death of their subject than they do his life. It happens everywhere in the gospels. There was this odd little verse hidden away in the law in the book of Leviticus that talked about the high priest. And he that is the high priest among his brethren, upon whose head the anointing oil was poured and that is consecrated to put on the garments, he shall not uncover his head nor rend his clothes. And that brings us to Jesus on trial before Caiaphas, the high priest of Israel. And this is Mark's account. But Jesus held his peace and answered nothing and it irritated the high priest. And again, the high priest asked him and said unto him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? He wants to get Jesus to admit that in a court of law so they can punish him. And Jesus looks right back at the high priest of Israel and says to him, I am and you shall see the son of man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. That's not what offended the high priest. What offended the high priest is Jesus. You could miss it in English. Jesus just used the holy, ineffable name of God revealed to Moses at the burning bush. He looked at the high priest of Israel. That high priest is not allowed to say that name. His father, a high priest, not allowed to say that name. His grandfather, a high priest, not allowed to say that name. His ancestors, for 300 years no high priest has said that name and now here is this carpenter from Nazareth standing on trial he's popular with the crowds but hated by the Sanhedrin and he looks back eyeball to eyeball with the high priest of Israel and he says I am your God that talked to Moses that's me your God that led father Abraham that's me your God that spoke to all the prophets that's me that's what but enraged the high priest. Watch this. Then the high priest rent his clothes and said, What need we any further witnesses? You've heard the blasphemy. What think ye? And they all condemned Jesus to be guilty of death. Something momentous happened in that moment because when Caiaphas got so angry that he reached up and he ripped his clothes, he broke the law of Leviticus 21.10. And at that exact moment, you couldn't see it in that courtroom, but heaven noticed it heaven felt it, heaven commanded it the high priesthood of Israel passed from Caiaphas lifted off of Caiaphas and it set upon Jesus so when Jesus went to Calvary he didn't go there as a victim he didn't go there as a martyr he went there as a high priest taking a sacrifice of his own blood for your sins that's why the writer of Hebrews says that we have a great high priest, he's passed into the heavens he's Jesus the son of God. So church, hold fast your profession we don't have a high priest that cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities he was in all points tempted like as we are he was man yet without sin he was also God let us therefore come boldly under the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need you can reach out to God anytime because he's a high priest that went through what you've gone through but the great thing about him, he's good enough to care but he's great enough to deliver he's good enough to love you and forgive you but he's great enough to break the shackles of sin and set you free he's our high priest I think our high priest deserves some high praise from the people of God even on a Bible study night yes 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 Oh, that's good, but it could be a little higher. Let the high praises of God be in their mouth and a two-edged sword in their hand. There's something about lifting up the name of the Lord Jesus. It's the only name. It's the greatest name. It's the covenant name of the whole New Testament. Oh, yes, Jesus. Now, Jesus has enraged the Sanhedrin repeatedly he's done it in the temple he's done it in the synagogue he's done it in the streets he's done it in the lanes of Israel but this time he has used that holy name of God in their court of law under Roman law the Sanhedrin can't execute anyone because they're dominated by Rome so they rush their prisoner to the governor Pontius Pilate and they demand that Jesus be crucified Now, if you read the gospel accounts, Pilate is seemingly impressed with Jesus, but they force him to carry out the execution through political pressure. And Pilate, although he seems to be a powerful figure, he's powerless to save the Nazarene, even though he wants to. Look at this. Then said Pilate unto them, take ye him and judge him according to your law. And the Jews corrected him. The Jews said, it's not lawful for us under Roman law to put any man to death. Watch this. John says, he adds a note, that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spake signifying what death he should die. You can almost feel prophecy picking up speed and accelerating at this point. You see, if Jesus had been condemned by a Jewish court for using that name, the penalty for blasphemy is death by stoning. But because the Jews are not allowed at this time in their history to execute anyone, Jesus will die by the Roman method of execution, which is crucifixion. That is what the prophets foresaw and that is what Jesus foretold. And I... If I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto me. After Pilate releases the robber Barabbas, after he has Jesus scourged at the whipping post, after he allows his soldiers to mock Jesus with a crown of thorns and a purple robe, the bloodthirsty Jewish leaders still cry out, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate talks with Jesus and three times In John's gospel, he says, I find no fault in him. And he tries multiple tactics and times to set Jesus free, but all to no avail. Matthew's gospel records that Pilate actually washes his hands and declares, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. Pilate's wife even has a dream about Jesus and sends her husband a note by special courier. Have thou nothing to do with that just man? for I've suffered many things this day in a dream because of him. But you see, the Sanhedrin is manipulating Pilate by threatening to report him to Caesar. And so the most powerful man stationed there in Jerusalem is powerless to do anything to set Jesus free. The Bible tells us that Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out saying, if you let this man go, thou art not Caesar's friend whosoever maketh himself a king speaks against Caesar. In other words, you let him go, we'll report you to Caesar. And you know what will happen if you get in trouble with Caesar. Pilate can do nothing to save this man of whom he declares three times, I can't find any fault in him. Or maybe, maybe there is one thing that Pilate can do he can at least recognize what this good man said about himself. Maybe that's why Pilate keeps referring to Jesus as the king of the Jews. Even though it irritates the crowd, even though it infuriates the Sanhedrin, Pilate keeps referring to him as the king of the Jews. He has no idea that he is actually fulfilling prophecy when he presents Jesus to the mob early that morning and says, behold your king. The Bible tells us specifically, it was the preparation of the Passover and about the sixth hour, that's early in the morning, 6 a.m. And Pilate said, Jesus had been dragged from one trial to another all night long but early in the morning he said to the Jews behold your king Pilate wasn't a Jew he's not a religious scholar he has no idea that when he presents Jesus to that crowd and says behold your king over in the temple the priests are preparing the Passover lamb that exact time to be sacrificed that afternoon he has no idea that when he pulls Jesus out in front of the crowd and says, behold your king. There's another prophecy hanging over Jesus' head from John the Baptist. Behold the lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. And the crowd is angry and they cry out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate says it again, shall I crucify your king? He's making them so angry. The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. And then delivered he him therefore unto them to be crucified. And they took Jesus. You talk about an understatement. They grabbed him. They chained him. They bound him. They slapped him. They abused him. They misused him. They dragged Jesus away. And they take Jesus to Golgotha, known as the place of the skull. The place of execution just outside the north walls of the city of Jerusalem sitting on the highest point of Mount Moriah. That is the place where Abraham offered Isaac. That is the place where David offered a costly sacrifice and stopped the plague that was killing his people. That is the place where Solomon built the glorious temple on top of Mount Moriah. That is the place where the weeping prophet Jeremiah sat in a cave and lamented over Jerusalem's destruction. You can feel... The streams of prophecy converging on Jesus, the substitutionary lamb, the perfect sacrifice, the glory of God, and the one who also wept over Jerusalem. You can feel the streams of prophecy converging on that place we know as Golgotha, Calvary, the place of the skull as he is taken there to be crucified. And he bearing his cross went forth into a place called the place of a skull, which is called in the Hebrew, Golgotha. My goodness. It says bearing his cross and it was, but can I tell you, it really was your cross. It really was my cross. It really was our cross. We should have had to pay the penalty of death, not just physical death, but eternal death for our sin because we were born in sin. We, we were shaped in sin and iniquity. We don't have a hope or a prayer, but Jesus bore his cross, which was really my cross, which was really your cross. And today we sit here in his presence, free from sin, headed for heaven, in love with Jesus. It's a wonderful life living for this God of ours. So, we don't know what Pontius Pilate actually knew. We don't have any of his journals or diaries or records. But whatever he knew or didn't know, he's not finished quite yet. Whether he understands what he's doing or not, his actions that afternoon, the afternoon that Jesus is crucified, his actions are absolutely prophetic. And Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross. And the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. This title then read many of the Jews, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near to the city. And the title was written in Hebrew and Greek and Latin, for the Jews, for the Greeks, for the Romans. And then said the chief priests of the Jews to Pilate, they came to him in a flurry, they came to him... With anxiety, they said, don't write the king of the Jews. Change that, Pilate. Write that he said, I am king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, I don't know what he knew, but he said, what I have written, I have written. What I have written, literally, what I have written, I will not change one bit. In an unusual move, Pilate himself writes this inscription. It's kind of like an epitaph, you would think. He has it placed on the cross of Jesus. Jesus. In three languages, in Hebrew, in Greek, and Latin, it says, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. It's just another epitaph of another criminal to the Greeks and to the Romans. But the Bible says that many of the Jews began to gather. And when they read that inscription hanging over the head of the Galilean, the chief priests suddenly saw the the students of the law and the memorizers of the word And and the lovers of the patterns of God's scripture, they see that they have a problem. They rush to Pilate, insisting, don't write the king of the Jews, change it, Pilate. Write, he said, add a couple of words. He said, I am king of the Jews. And Pilate says, no, what I have written, I will not change one bit. The problem that was such an upset to those leaders of the Jews, those scholars of the law, was this. Written over Jesus' head in Hebrew was Yeshua Hanazarai, Vimelik HaYehudim, Hebrew reading from right to left. But to the Jewish leaders... The Bible code experts, the students of the law, when they looked at that, the people who memorized huge sections of the scripture by watching for the patterns, the first of words, the first letter of verses, they were the ones who saw it first. They saw this condemning acrostic when they read that inscription. Because the first letter of each word, Yeshua Hanazarai Vimelech HaYehudim, spelled out clearly Yud heh vav heh over the head of Jesus as he writhed in agony on the cross, as his blood flowed out of his body and dripped down that old rugged instrument of execution, as his blood, his sinless blood, touched the sin-cursed soil of our planet, written over his head like a billboard was the holy name of God first revealed to Moses at the burning bush. That wasn't a carpenter's blood that was being shed that day. That wasn't just a martyr or a criminal. Paul later said in Acts 20, 28, feed the church of God because he purchased the church with his own blood. That was divine blood. That was sinless blood. That was delivering blood. That was body bondage breaking blood that was drug destroying blood that was alcohol destroying blood that was blood that could lift you out of the doldrums of sin and make you a saint of god for all eternity that was the blood of jesus that was the blood of god that was the blood that has saved us and yeah that's the blood that heals us and if that isn't worthy of your praise to God, I don't know what would be. It should have been me on that cross. It should have been you on that cross. But God robed himself in flesh also, he could have a body with blood to shed for your sins and for mine, for your healing and for mine, for your deliverance and for mine. Oh, we'd usually say something like this on Sunday night, but I wish somebody would make some noise in this room and give God great praise. Yes, 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 yes. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Oh, yes, yes, yes. There's nobody like this, Jesus. But it's even more beautiful and it's even more meaningful and it's even more powerful than that when you consider the tetragrammaton itself because each letter of the Hebrew alphabet, as we studied when we did that wonderful series on Psalm 119, each letter of the Hebrew alphabet is associated forever with an image. Yud is forever associated with the image of a hand. He is associated with the image of a window and is given the meaning behold, as if you would look through a window. Vav is forever given the association of a nail. And so literally, hidden in the name of God from the very moment that he revealed it to Moses at the burning bush was, behold the hand, behold the nail. The message of Calvary was encoded in the name of God from the moment of the burning bush. Yes, Jesus was the lamb, Not slain in AD 30. He was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. It was always the plan of God. So on that afternoon, all around the cross, creation spoke loudly. The sun darkened and the earth shook. And the rocks split and the graves opened and the temple veil was ripped in twain from the top to the bottom. That happened all around the cross. But over the cross, the word of God couldn't help but speak as well. Behold the hand, behold the nail. Y-H-V-H, Yahweh is the one dying with nails in his hands. My, 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 my then sings my soul my savior God to thee how great thou art oh what a savior oh hallelujah we better worship him bitter. or I'm going to lose it up here what a savior we have what a savior he is My, 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 my. Whoo! Etela ba shias sabah tikia ba. Orebat etela ba shesaba bokute Ah. Orebal etoshesaba baku te baha. My goodness. Even after their enemy was dead, the chief priests are still nervous because they know the disciples didn't catch it, but they did. Jesus had said, in the opening chapters of John's gospel, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. The disciples didn't have a clue, but the chief priests had some fears. In Matthew's account, they come to Pilate and they demand Roman guards to secure the tomb until after the third day. I don't know what Pilate knew, but he just tells him, you use your own guards. And he makes a puzzling remark to them. In Matthew's account, he says, go your way, make the tomb as sure as you can. (laughs) It's as if he's saying, I don't know what he knew it's as if he's saying you do your best to keep that him in the grave but if that man said he's rising from the grave on the third day i have a hunch he might be able to pull it off and that brings us to john chapter 20 and we'll end here tonight i would teach this whole series just to teach this lesson tonight john chapter 20 jesus has died They've taken his lifeless body down from the cross. They have wrapped him in a grave shroud and they have taken him to a borrowed tomb and they've laid him in the tomb. And the hours and the days have ticked by and it is now the third day. You would think that the disciples would have all been gathered around the tomb, but they weren't. Nobody is there on Easter Sunday morning going, 10, 10. Nine, eight, it doesn't happen. They are shattered. Their world is destroyed. Their savior is gone. They are confused and confounded. And then it's a little lady, one of his disciples, that goes to the tomb. She's not going because she's expecting to see him alive. She's going because... She would like to pay her respects and because his body was so hurriedly rushed off the cross because the Sabbath was approaching, she just wants to put some spices on his body as they would normally do and treat her Savior and Lord with respect. She's not expecting what she sees when she gets there because the stone has been rolled away. <laughs> But Mary stood without at the sepulchre weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the sepulchre and she sees two angels in white sitting, the one at the head and the one at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. When she looks into that tomb on Easter Sunday morning, Mary sees the most familiar silhouette in all of Judaism, in all of Hebrew history and theology. Because there's only one other place in all of the scriptural record where we find two angels facing each other over a flat slab. That place was the mercy seat on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And between those two carved angels in the Old Testament dwelt the Shekinah presence of God. One more time, God is painting a picture for us. The reason the body of the man Jesus was able to come out of the grave on Easter Sunday morning is because within that body, body dwelt the divine Shekinah presence of the only true only living God the Shekinah of God that dwelt in the tabernacle it was in that tomb that weekend the divine presence of Jehovah was in the man Christ Jesus that's why he could do what we could never do he could raise himself from the dead and come out of that tomb he is not here the angels said he is risen and the great news tonight is he's still risen he's still out there he's still alive he's still at work he's still in his church by the power of his spirit and if the spirit that raised up Jesus from the dead if it dwells in you if it gets in you if it lives in you it'll quicken your mortal body by his spirit that dwells in you. Oh my, better come in for a landing or I'm gonna take off. John's gospel culminates with the inspired revelation of doubting Thomas in chapter 20. You remember our little chart. We love charts around here. Scholars say that chapter 21 is really just a postscript. So the gospel really comes to an end with the revelation of Doubting Thomas in chapter 20. Thomas, for 2,000 years, has held the moniker Doubting Thomas because he missed one church service. Let that be a lesson to us all. But Thomas comes the second time. But in between, he has a conversation with his friends, the other disciples, and he says... I know you say Jesus appeared to you. I know you say Jesus is alive. But guys, friends, you're delusional. I saw him die. I saw the nails. I saw the blood. I saw the dead corpse being taken down from the cross. You can't convince me. The only thing that would convince me is if he could stand before me and I could put my finger in the nail prints in his hands and I could thrust my hand into the spear hole that is in his side. Only then would I even have a hope of believing and do you know that this Jesus that we serve is so merciful that he'll even answer a request like that he'll go to any length to find you he'll knock down walls to get you he'll climb up mountains to get you he'll go into deep valleys to get you he will chase you until you feel his love once again and that's what he did for Thomas so Thomas comes the second time around and there stands Jesus in their midst, all of a sudden he appears. And he says, "Thomas, come on over. Who put your finger in the nail prints in my hands and put your hand in the spear print, the gaping hole in my side." And when Thomas realizes the significance of what he's just seen, mortal wounds that would have bled out any normal human body in minutes. And when he sees those mortal wounds in the body of a living man who is standing there talking to him, Thomas joins together two words that had not been joined together before the title of respect, Kyrios, sir or master, with the absolute title of deity, Theos. And he says, My Lord and my God. And Thomas answered and said unto him, my Lord, my master, and my God, the master that I walked with, the Jesus that I talked with, the the, the friend that I ate with, the, the one that we traveled around with, the one that we listened to him teach, he's not just my master. He's my master and my God. He's my Kyrios and my Theos. He's my Lord and he's my God. And Jesus said unto him something that is very significant for us. He said, Thomas, because you've seen me, you have believed. That's wonderful. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. Thomas, there will one day be a group of people who never got to walk with me in the flesh, but they will walk with me in the spirit. They never got to sit at a campfire with me in the region of the Galilee. But they will sit and ponder my word and pray to me and we will have fellowship. And though they have never seen me like you got to see me, Thomas, they will receive the very same revelation of my deity that you just received. They will know. That I am God manifest in the flesh. They will understand that I am the mighty. God in Christ they will get it down deep in their spirit that I am the last word from God if you've seen me you've seen the father I and my father are one in me dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily I'm the one who came I'm the one who lived I'm the one who died was buried and rose again I'm the one who was ascended and I am the one whoever lives to make intercession for them Thomas they'll get the same revelation that you got. They will believe and they will have eternal life through my name. And brothers and sisters, that's us. We have the same revelation. I know there's people that say, well, I wish I could have walked with Jesus. I wish I could have been there. I wish I could have seen this or that. Do you realize you have an equivalent privilege because you are filled with the same Holy Ghost that filled those disciples in the upper room on the day of Pentecost? That's us. That's this. That's the church. That's his body. That's revelation. That's truth. We call it The oneness of God. I am not ashamed of it. I am thrilled by it. I I am not backing up from it. I am running to it. It is Bible truth. It is powerful revelation that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. Stand with me right now. That Jesus, that one that Thomas touched, that one that Thomas addressed, he is here in this room by the power of his spirit, just as real, just as strong as he was in that room looking at Thomas 2,000 years ago. So if you have a need, He's there to touch you or heal you or help you. But regardless of whether you have a need or not, He is here to receive your worship. And He's due your honor and your adoration and your praise. Because the great Creator became my Savior and all God's fullness dwelleth in Him. He's my Lord and He's my God. He's not just a stranger to me. Oh my.